guys can turn to Genesis 39 as we continue the story of Joseph today, Genesis 39. I'm guessing that like most of you guys out there, I played baseball when I was a kid. Actually, though, just, just for a couple years, yeah. Don't whoop for my baseball. No, no. <laughs> I just played for two years. I played um, t-ball and, and one year of dad's pitch. I never got very good at it because uh, I was not a very athletic kid. I was the kid, if you've coached baseball, you know, I was the kid that they put in far right field so that I would, I would never see the ball because I didn't know how to catch it. But my biggest problem was I was terrified of, of a baseball because it's, it's really a pretty hard ball. When you, when you pick it up, if you're a little kid, it weighs as much as me. And I'm thinking, why are we not playing with a tennis ball? That would make this game way more fun. Instead, we're playing with this really hard ball that's going to hurt me if it hits me. So I was afraid every time I went to bat. And I was terrified every time some kid hit the ball my direction in right field. I was that kid who would go to catch the ball like this because I, I, I didn't even want to see it. Now, my son is, is four and a half now, so he's not far from being baseball age himself. And I don't know what to teach him because I still don't know how to catch a ball. Because I washed out of baseball long before I, I learned anything. I washed out on one particular Saturday morning. We were preparing for a game. We were warming up. All the dads are, are pitching to all the sons. And um, one of the dads threw my direction, and I happened to be looking elsewhere. I was not paying attention. And so the ball cracked me right in the nose, and, and I fell to the ground, howling in pain, and threw off my glove, tossed my cap, and then I did what all of us are tempted to do. When something gets hard and painful and frustrating, I quit. That was it for me in baseball. My illustrious career came to an end. I never got a baseball card dedicated to me because I gave up. I quit baseball on that day. And that's human nature for all of us. When something gets hard, when it gets painful, when it gets difficult, we are tempted to quit. We're tempted to give up on it. That's, that's normal. That's, that's what we do. And that's not just for baseball. That's for really serious things in life, too. When life gets hard, we're tempted to give up. So maybe there's some situation that you have been praying about for years. You've been praying and asking God to do something good in your life or in the life of someone that you love, and God has done nothing. And after years, you feel tempted to just give up on prayer and give in to bitterness. Or maybe there is some intense pain in your life, some physical or, or emotional or financial pain, and month after month it's not getting any better, and you feel tempted to just give up hope and give in to self-pity. Or maybe there's some addictive sin that has just been owning you, and you, you are fighting it, but you just can't win. It is defeating you day after day, and you just want to give up, throw up your hands and give in to sin. When life crushes you, Under the weight of of pain and suffering, it is normal to want to give up on God and on life and give in to self-pity and bitterness. That's normal. That's human nature. That's why it is so stunning when you meet one of those one in a million kind of people whose life is full of, of pain and suffering and grief and disappointment and yet who refuses to give up. They will not give up on hope. They keep fighting, they keep hoping, they keep loving, they keep serving. People like Joni Erickson Tata, I don't know if you know who this is. Joni had a diving accident decades ago when she was a teenager. It left her a quadriplegic. 
After getting out of the hospital, Joni taught herself how to paint using only her mouth, and then she wrote 40 books, like four zero books, and then she started multiple ministries to disabled people, she starred in a movie, she's become a world-renowned speaker and theologian. I don't know any non-disabled people who have accomplished more for the kingdom of God than that lady. You meet someone like that at Joni Erickson Tata, and it forces you to ask yourself, how? How in the world can a person who has been crushed by so much pain and suffering and disappointment in life, how can they keep going? How can they keep hoping and fighting and loving and serving? How do they keep going in the midst of such a painful life? Well, that's the question that I want us to answer this morning by looking at a person whose life was a lot like hers. We're going to look at Joseph this morning. We're going to see how Joseph endured incredible pain and suffering in life without giving up. Now, just to remind you where we are, we're in the middle of a three-week series on the life of Joseph. And what we're discovering in Joseph is that God can change the world for the better through just one believer who is willing to say no to three common temptations that we will all face in this life. First, you got to be willing to say no to the temptation to give in to sin, particularly sexual sin. That's what we studied last week. This week, we'll see that you, you have to be willing to say no to the temptation to give up when life gets hard. And then next week, saying no to the temptation to get even with those who have hurt you. So this morning, we're going to look at how Joseph resisted the temptation to give up, to surrender to self-pity and bitterness. When life became unbearably hard. Now, if you think about the life of Joseph, from what you know of him, Joseph had lots of reasons to give up on God and give up on life. Let's, let's reflect on what we know about Joseph. Last week we met him in chapter 39. He was a slave in Potiphar's house. And how did he get to be a slave in Potiphar's house? Well, that takes you back to chapter 37. We looked at that last week. His own brothers sold him into slavery. They hated him. Just absolutely hated him. And so when they had an opportunity, they grabbed hold of him and they stripped him naked and beat him and threw him into a pit in the ground, a cistern. So a windowless pit that you can't get out of. They threw him in there actually to die of starvation. That was their intent. But after throwing him in there, they saw some Ishmaelite traders coming their way and they thought better. They thought, why, why not instead of letting him die, why don't we sell him? We'll make a little money off this deal. And so they sell him to these Ishmaelite traders who take him down to Egypt. Egypt and sell him to Potiphar. So now Joseph is a slave. He'll be a slave for the rest of his life. There's no way out of Egyptian slavery. He's a slave through no fault of his own. His brothers sold him into slavery. So that's pretty bad. But you recall last week, chapter 39, even though he was sold into lifelong slavery by his own brothers, Joseph didn't give up on life. He didn't give in to self-pity, didn't feel sorry for himself. He got to work. He got to work serving his master, Potiphar, serving all the people in his house. He was faithful. He was hardworking. He was responsible. He was a model employee. And so Potiphar raised him up. He promoted him. Things were starting to look better. But that's when temptation arrived. Sexual temptation showed up. Potiphar's wife came after Joseph. She lusted after him. She wanted to sleep with him. So she, she seeks him out. She propositions him day after day after day. And you'll recall, Joseph continually says no. Day after day after day, he resists. He obeys God. He honors Potiphar. He walks in obedience. And what does Joseph get for all of that obedience? Well, look with me, chapter 39. Let's pick up the story where we left off last week in, in verse 12. 
Verse 12, she, that is Potiphar's wife, caught him, that is Joseph, by his garment, saying, lie with me, that is, have sex with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought in a Hebrew to make to us to make sport of us. He came in to lie with me and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, the Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. So what does Joseph get for all of his obedience? He gets thrown in prison. He gets falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. Potiphar gets angry and throws Joseph into prison. Now, you have to understand, the prisons of the ancient world were not like prisons today. In ancient Egypt, a prison was, we're told in in chapter 40, it's literally a a pit or a dungeon. So it's a big hole in the ground. No windows, no no way out. That's what a jail was. And, And in Egyptian imprisonment, if you were thrown in prison in Egypt, it was a de facto life sentence. They didn't have a concept like, hey, you're going to jail for five years. No, if you're in jail, you're there for good. There's actually only one way out. The king himself, Pharaoh, he had to forgive you and pull you up himself. Otherwise, you spent the rest of your life in a hole in the ground. And so Joseph is facing a life sentence in a dungeon in the ground for a crime he never committed. Man, you you talk about unjust suffering. You, You talk about pain. You talk about hardship. You talk about life not being fair. Joseph would end up spending 13 years either a slave or in a hole in the ground. His life was incredibly unjust, incredibly hard, incredibly painful. If anyone has ever had a right to give up on life, to throw up their hands and say, I'm done with God. I'm done with trying. It was Joseph. And yet he never gave up. He never gave in to to self-pity. He never gave in to bitterness. He never gave up on God. He kept hoping and believing and loving and serving. How did he do that? How did this man who faced unbelievable hardship, honestly, I I cannot imagine what it would have felt like to be this guy. I, I I can't even put myself in his shoes. To be betrayed, beaten, stripped, sold by your own brothers into lifelong slavery, then accused of a crime you didn't commit and thrown into the hole, into a hole in the ground for the rest of your life. I can't fathom that. How did a man who faced such incredibly unjust suffering resist the temptation to give up on life? How did he hold on to hope and love in the midst of that pain? When you look through the Genesis account, what you discover is that the way that Joseph was able to resist the temptation to give up on God and give up on life was he clung to three beliefs. He clung to three beliefs that are here in the text. Three things that he believed to be true that gave him strength to endure incredible suffering and will give you strength when suffering comes into your life, which it will. Some of you are are young. You haven't seen that yet. All of us, this side of heaven, will suffer. When suffering comes into your life, these same three beliefs will give you strength to carry on, 
They give you strength to hold on to hope and love in the midst of incredible pain. So let's look at these three beliefs in Joseph's life that gave him the ability to endure, to to hold on to hope when life turned really bad. First belief that Joseph hold to that gave him strength. Joseph was able to endure intense suffering because he believed that God is with me in my pain. Look with me at, at verse 20. Verse 20, let's start there again. Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the jailer. It's a couple key phrases in verse 21 that really stand out to us. The first is it says, the Lord was with Joseph. That's actually repeated three times in the chapter. Verse 2, verse 21, verse 23. Joseph believed that God was with him. That even though his circumstances had changed for the worse, God's presence never changes. God was always with him. But, But it's not just that God was with him. Joseph believed something more. Joseph believed that God had extended kindness to him. Even when he's in the pit, even when he's in the dungeon, Joseph believes that God is extending kindness to him. And that word kindness, it's interesting. In Hebrew, it's it's chesed. It, It means loyal love. God's loyal, unconditional, eternal love for his people. Joseph believed that even though his circumstances had changed, for the worst, God's love had not changed. God was still loving him. Joseph was still an object of God's eternal love, even though he was in the dungeon. Joseph believed that God was with him, loving him through the suffering and through the pain. Now, that can be a little bit hard to believe sometimes. I don't know if you're like me, but... I know that when I suffer, when life gets hard, when, when something is, is going wrong in life or, or life is stressful or I, f- I feel depressed, which pastors can get depressed, just so you know that, um, when I feel discouraged about my life, it is tempting to feel like God is far away. It's tempting to feel like maybe he's turned his back on me, maybe he's got other people to care about, maybe he's just frustrated with me, doesn't really want to spend time with me. It feels like God is far away. That, that's how suffering works. When we're in pain, when we're suffering, it tends to isolate us. We feel like everyone, including God, is, is far away. What God wants us to understand, what Joseph wants us to understand is even though God may feel far away, he is not. He, he is right here with you right now in the midst of your suffering. At all times, in all places, God is with you, loving you, and caring for you. That's not just true for Joseph. It's true for all of us. That's actually a common theme throughout the Bible. It's really hard for me to choose just a couple verses to share with you because there's so many great verses in the Bible about God's unchanging, unconditional presence. But here's a couple that are my favorite that I cling to when life gets hard for me. The first is from the end of the book of Matthew. It's Jesus' last words on earth is recorded in Matthew. So the last thing he wanted to say to us is a promise. This is from the lips of Jesus before he ascends into heaven. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's a promise. Jesus has promised to be with you individually, personally, in all situations, on good days and bad days, in the day and in the night, he is with you to the end of the age. A second passage to share with you is from the end of the book of Hebrews. Right at the end of the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, it says, He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. 
No matter how lonely and abandoned you feel in the midst of your pain and your suffering, you need to know that God has taken an oath. He he has sworn a promise to you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter what you think. God is there with you. He's promised it. He is your helper standing right next to you, always ready to give you aid in time of need. So what we have to do is we have to choose to believe in our pain and in our suffering that God is with us even if we don't feel like it. I've noticed in my life, my my feelings about God's presence are not a reliable indicator of whether he is there or not. Often it doesn't feel like he's there. I can't sense him. I can't see him. I can't touch him. I can't hear him. He may feel far away. That doesn't change the fact. He has sworn on his own name that he will never leave me or forsake me. Whether I can feel his presence or not, he is always with me. I must take it on faith. That in my pleasures, so in my pains, in my good days, so as in my bad days, God is always with us. In our pains, in our sufferings, he is here. We got to cling to that truth. We got to hold on to that belief. Even if we don't feel his presence, we must believe that he is there with us. Why? Because if you suffer alone, it will destroy you. It'll ruin you. If you are suffering, if you are in pain and you believe that you really are totally alone, that everyone has turned their back on you, that even God has abandoned you, if you suffer alone, it will break you. It'll tear you up inside. But if you walk through suffering with a confidence, with an assurance that God is with you, that he is present in your pain, that he is walking through the grief with you, well, that assurance can make you great. That assurance can make you a person like Joseph, who you know where the story's heading. He's going to end up saving that whole part of the world. Tens or hundreds of thousands of people will be saved through this man. Because when he suffered, he chose to believe God is here. Right now, in the dungeon, as much as on my best day, God is with me. My helper, my aid, my ever-present Savior in time of need. Joseph chose to believe that God was with him, even in his pain. That was the first belief that gave him strength to endure. When life got really hard, that will help you when life gets really hard. Second belief that that Joseph clung to that gave him strength to to carry on when life got hard. Joseph believed that God has a greater purpose for my pain. God has a greater purpose for my pain. There's a very significant detail in verse 20. Look at verse 20. It's really easy to miss. Really easy to pass over this. What particular jail, what particular dungeon does Potiphar throw Joseph into? the dungeon where the king put his prisoners. Where the king put his own prisoners, that proves very significant. Some of you know where this story is headed. For those of you who don't, let me walk you through the the most important details. So Potiphar throws Joseph into this particular prison. Let's pick up the story in verse 40, or in chapter 40. Then it came about after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, so he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. So Joseph is in this particular prison where the king throws his cupbearer and his baker. Let me explain cupbearer because it sounds like kind of a dumb job. You're going to 
hold a guy's cup. What's up with that? In the ancient world, a cupbearer was actually a really important position. If you were the cupbearer, you were an official advisor to the king, but, but you weren't just any advisor. Because you see, in the ancient world, if you wanted to kill a, a king, the easiest way to do it was to poison his drink. So the pharaoh, the king, would have to choose his most trusted advisor to hand him his beverage. That's the cupbearer. The most trusted advisor, the most trusted uh, official of the king's court. So, so this cupbearer is an incredibly important man. One of the most important men in the whole nation. Pharaoh gets angry at him, throws him in jail. He is with Joseph in jail, and then he has a dream. He has this weird dream. He knows it means something, but he doesn't know what. It's stressing him out. And Joseph comes, and, and, and the cupbearer tells him the dream, and Joseph interprets it. He says, the Pharaoh's going to let you out. He's going to restore you in just three days. And sure enough, three days later, the Pharaoh restores the cupbearer. Joseph's interpretation comes true. Unfortunately, look at the end of the chapter, verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So he forgets what Joseph has done for him. And because of that, Joseph remains in prison in that pit for another two years. Let's pick up the story in chapter 41, verse 1. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he was standing by the Nile. Pharaoh, the king, he he has this really weird dream. And he has a sense that it means something, that there's meaning behind this dream, but he doesn't know what it is. And, and none of his advisors can figure out what this dream means. But all of a sudden, the cupbearer remembers, hey, there's, there's this Jewish kid in prison. And he's got this incredible ability to interpret dreams. He interpreted mine. It came true. Maybe you should go talk to him. And Pharaoh likes the idea. So Pharaoh calls Joseph out, verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream. And it is crazy. Joseph, or Pharaoh had a dream where cows are eating other cows and corn is eating other corn. And it doesn't seem to make any sense, but God gives Joseph this, this interpretation of the dream. Joseph understands. What God is, is doing is telling Pharaoh ahead of time that, that seven years from today, there is going to be an incredibly intense drought, an incredibly intense famine that strikes the land of Egypt. It's, it's not like any drought you've ever seen before. It's going to last for seven years. And unless the king prepares ahead of time, everyone will die. And then Joseph gives some unsolicited advice. I, I recommend that, that the king appoint a wise man to help Egypt prepare ahead of time. Save a whole lot of grain for the next seven years. So when the famine strikes, you'll be ready. Pharaoh loves the idea. And, and he realizes, man, I've, I found my guy. I found my guy. It's you. Look at the end of the chapter. Verse 38. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne, I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Joseph's life has taken quite a twist. He was a brother who became a slave, who became a prisoner. 
But now he's second in command of the most powerful nation on earth. And he gets right to work. He builds huge warehouses where he stores all the grain he can for seven years. And when the drought strikes seven years later, when the famine falls upon the land, Joseph has more than enough food saved up to feed all the Egyptians. He actually has enough to feed all the surrounding nations and families as well, including his own family. Hanging out back in the promised land, his own brothers who betrayed him and sold him into slavery, Joseph ends up feeding them, saving his family from starvation. And at the end of his life, at the end of the book of Genesis, when all is said and done, Joseph sits down with his brothers and he has a conversation. He talks about what they did to him, about the the abuse that that they betrayed upon him. and, And he concludes this. He says this about what they had done. As for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. I want you to notice a couple things. First, Joseph says, what you did to me was evil. Betrayal and selling me into slavery, those are not good. God doesn't call those good. God doesn't call any suffering good. Pain is not good to God. Evil is not good to God. That's not the good. The good is what God brings through the evil. Through the suffering, through the pain, Joseph is saying God was at work. I didn't even know it, but God was at work behind all of this evil, behind all of this suffering, sovereignly, wisely bringing about a greater good. He was moving me and and moving my life, directing it so that I would be in the right position to save hundreds of thousands of people's lives. And you look at the story, that's exactly how it worked out. God used his brother's betrayal to put Joseph in the exact place he needed to be. He's in Egypt, the only nation on earth at that time that had the resources to feed the world when famine struck. And he had Potiphar's wife lie and and throw Joseph into a particular prison so that in that prison, at just the right time, Joseph could meet the cupbearer who would introduce him to the king so that Joseph could become the second greatest man in Egypt and the savior of that whole part of the world at that time. Joseph understands, behind all of my pain and suffering, God didn't cause the pain and suffering, but God is big enough and wise enough and good enough to use all of that pain and suffering as part of a greater purpose for a greater good. That belief enabled Joseph to endure. He believed that God had a greater purpose for a greater good that encompassed all of his pain. His pain and suffering wasn't being wasted. God was using it to bring about an incredible good, not just for Joseph, but for hundreds of thousands of other people. Now, that's not just true for Joseph. It's not just God using Joseph for greater good. God is doing the same in your life. It's a promise that that Paul talks about in Romans 8, verse 28. Many of you are very familiar with this verse. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God is promising that he is using all the things that come into your life, including the painful things, including the evil things, including the the suffering which he didn't cause, he is still using it for good. For good for you, for good for other people, he is accomplishing a greater purpose for a greater good through all of your pain and all of your suffering. Now, unfortunately... For us, unlike for Joseph, most of us will not get to see that greater good in this lifetime. Joseph got to see it. He got to see what God was doing behind the pain. Most of us won't. 
In this life, God's greater purpose for a greater good behind our pain will remain hidden in shadows. It'll remain a mystery to us. We won't yet see all the good that God is bringing in our lives. We won't yet see all the people whom God is blessing and saving through our pain. We won't see it in this life, but you will see it in the next life. There will be a day when you stand with God and he shows you the life that you lived on earth and he shows you why. He shows you all the whys, all all the whys behind all your pain. Why did you have to suffer that? Why did you have to endure that pain? Here is why. Here is the good that I was bringing through all of that pain. Here is why your pain was necessary to unleash incredible blessing in your life and in the lives of other people. And I am confident that when God opens our eyes to see all the good that he was bringing in our lives through our pain and through our suffering, we will look back and we will confess that all of that pain and all of that suffering was but a small price to pay for all the good that God was doing. You can't see it yet. For now, you just have to take it on faith. You just have to choose to believe that God is at work through your pain, through your suffering to accomplish a greater purpose for a greater good. You have to choose to believe with John Newton that everything is necessary that God sends and nothing is necessary that he withholds. Everything is necessary that he sends, including the really awful stuff, painful stuff that he allows you to endure the suffering that he allows into your life, somehow in some mysterious way that only God understands thus far, that pain and suffering is necessary to bring a greater good to you and to lots of other people whom God will touch through the pain and suffering you endure. You can't see it yet, you just gotta take it on faith. That God is at work behind and underneath your pain and your suffering to accomplish a greater purpose for a greater good for you and for countless others. That belief enabled Joseph to endure when life got incredibly hard. He was able to hold on to hope because he knew that God was accomplishing something greater. He didn't know what it was for most of his life. When he was in prison, he had no idea. He just knew God is doing something, something big. He's allowing this pain into my life because he has big plans to use me for great good. He has the same plans for you. Third belief that enabled Joseph to endure when life got hard. He believed that God still has significant work for me to do. Even though my life looks like a complete failure, a complete tragedy, God's not done with me yet. He still has significant work for me to accomplish in life. Look again at chapter 39. Look at verses 22 and 23. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. So just like when he became a slave, so now that he's a a prisoner, Joseph gets to work. He doesn't give in to self-pity. He doesn't give in to bitterness. He doesn't turn in on himself. He is busy serving other people. He's busy working hard for whoever is in charge of him. So he works hard. Then look at at chapter 40, verse 4. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, the cupbearer and the baker, and really all the prisoners, and he took care of them all. Verse 6. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? 
I'm amazed at that. It's incredible. Here is Joseph who is enduring more unjust suffering than anyone I have ever, ever known short of Jesus Christ. Incredibly unjust suffering, incredible pain. And yet rather than care about himself and his pain and his suffering, he is focused on other people. He wakes up in the morning and he goes, looks for somebody to care about, somebody to encourage. Why are you sad? What can I do to serve you today? What can I do to encourage you today? I don't know if you've ever visited somebody in the hospital or in the nursing home who's, who's in a lot of pain or, or getting close to death. Typically, when you visit a person like that who's on their last leg, life is painful for them. Typically, they're not really excited about life. They're not really happy. And, and we shouldn't be surprised. They're in a lot of pain. They're, they're on their last leg. It's, it's really hard not to become consumed with, with your problems and your fear and your pain in the midst of that and really turn in on yourself. But, but what's really surprising is that one in a hundred person you visit in the hospital or in the nursing home who's in incredible pain, maybe they're, they're dying, they know that they're gonna die, and yet rather than focus on their pain and their suffering, all they seem to care about is you. They're asking about how you're doing. They're encouraging you. They're asking how they can pray for you. Have you ever met somebody like that? My, my wife's grandmother was like that. She lived to be 97 years old, and she spent the majority of her latter years in a retirement home up in Dallas. And, and for all of that time, her husband had already died. Almost all of her friends had died. Uh, her body was breaking down. She had a lot of ailments like anyone that age would have, a lot, of, a lot of medication. She was in a lot of pain. It was really hard work for her even to just walk to dinner. That, that was a major battle for her, just to walk to dinner. So really hard life. And yet what amazed me was every time I went to visit her, I would see her loving on other people. And not just her family. Everybody hopefully does that. Not just her family, but all the residents of, the, of that home. She knew them all by name, every one of them. And so they'd come in, in the common area and she would greet them with a smile and she would say hello and she would ask them how they're doing and she would encourage them. And, and she used to walk down the hall to check on people if she hadn't heard from them in a little bit and see how they're doing and how she could serve them. I hope that I get to live to be 97 years old. If I do, what I really hope is that I'm half the saint that she was. You see a person like Julie's grandmother or like Joseph, who in the midst of incredible pain, incredible suffering, chooses to love on other people and care for other people. What allows them to do that is the stubborn conviction, the stubbornly held belief that God's not done with me yet. doesn't matter that I'm 97 years old and can't even make it to the dinner table. God's got work for me to do. Significant work that touches other people, that changes their lives, that blesses them. I am still needed that's what Joseph believed in prison. Doesn't matter that you're in a hole in the ground. God's not done with you. You got work to do. And so he got busy loving other people every day for 13 years as a slave and in prison. Joseph got up and looked for somebody else to care about. I think what Joseph and what Julie's grandmother understood, what they knew that, that we need to believe is that working hard to serve other people is one of our most powerful weapons against despair and self-pity. Working hard to serve other people is one of the most powerful weapons you have to fight bitterness and self-pity. I think part of the reason that Joseph never gave in to self-pity, why he never became bitter about his life, is because he was too busy caring about other people to actually really think about what had happened to him. He didn't give himself time to reflect on all the injustice in his life. He didn't give himself time to think about everything that had gone wrong for him. 
He preoccupied himself with caring for other people. That's what filled his days and his nights. I think that's one of the reasons is that Julie's grandmother lived to be 97. She didn't really focus on her pain, on her discomfort. She focused on other people. By focusing on the needs of other people, it gave her strength to endure another day. I found in my own life, when life gets hard, when, when I am discouraged, when I'm depressed, when I'm, when I'm really bent up over something, when I'm really torn up inside, one of the best things for me to do, one of the wisest things I can do, is come into the office and get to work serving other people. It's actually one of the best things I can do on my darkest days. Just get dressed, come to the office, get to work, caring about other people. Because as I care about other people, I lose myself. I lose myself in service to other people. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. You, you get so busy serving other people and caring about their needs that this blessed sense of self-forgetfulness comes over you. If even just for a moment you forget your pain, your grief, your suffering, because you're so busy caring for other people. If you will focus and dedicate your life on caring for other people, it will give you strength to endure when pain and suffering settle in. When you suffer, if you'll focus on meeting the needs of others, just build that habit, caring about other people, looking to meet their needs first, that's one of your greatest weapons against self-pity and bitterness. You care about other people. So three beliefs that gave Joseph the ability to endure incredible suffering beyond what any of us can fathom. But there is a fourth belief that we have today that can give us strength to endure when life gets hard. It's a belief that Joseph actually knew nothing about. Joseph didn't know this fourth one because Joseph lived before the cross. We live after the cross. And so because we live after the cross, we have a fourth belief that Joseph knew nothing about that can give us hope even in our darkest of days. That fourth belief that can give us hope is that God knows our pain firsthand. God knows your pain firsthand. You need to understand, when life gets bleak, when it gets dark, when it gets painful and just awful and you feel alone and abandoned, you need to understand something about your God that is contrary to all the gods of all the other religions, contrary to all of their gods, you have a God who understands your suffering firsthand. He understands your suffering by experience. Human suffering isn't just intellectual knowledge to God. He's not removed from it. He doesn't stand above it. He is not disconnected from it. No, he knows it by experience because Jesus, God's son, he took on human flesh. He became a human being like us. And when he took on that human flesh, he made himself vulnerable to all the pains and sufferings of human life. And so God the Son, Jesus Christ, he suffered more pain, more, more abuse, more unjust suffering than any of us will ever know. He actually suffered more than, than any of us will ever suffer. Just to review some of the, the highlights for you, Jesus, during his earthly life, he was hungry in the wilderness, he was exhausted in Samaria, he was angry and disappointed and disillusioned at the temple, he was heartbroken at Lazarus' tomb, he was anguished and afraid in the garden, and he was abandoned, arrested, beaten, stripped, tortured, and crucified in Jerusalem. You have a God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who has suffered far worse than any suffering you will ever know. 
When you are in pain, when life is crushing you, you need to understand, Jesus has been here before. Jesus knows what this feels like firsthand. He's experienced, he's actually experienced worse than this. Jesus knows our pain firsthand, but here's what separates Jesus' suffering from our suffering. The thing that makes his suffering different is that he had a choice. He had a choice. We can't help but suffer. We live in a sin-cursed world. We're human beings. We're gonna suffer. But Jesus, he had a choice because he was God. He still is God. He had lived in the beauty and bliss of heaven with God the Father and God the Spirit for all of time. And he could have stayed there, free of pain, free of suffering. But instead, he, he chose to suffer with us, to become human and suffer all of the pain of a cursed life. Why did he do that? Why did he choose to suffer? Out of love. Out of love for you and for me. So that he could suffer in our place. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 5, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. What we need to understand about Jesus is that Jesus chose the thorns. He chose the whip. He chose the nails in his hands. No one made him go there. He chose to suffer all of that pain so that he could pay the price of all of our sins, so that he could become our offering, our sacrifice to God, so that God could forgive us, so that God could give us eternal life. That's, that's the good news that we call the gospel. That forgiveness and eternal life, that's not something you earn from God. You don't work for that stuff. You don't have to merit that stuff. You don't work for forgiveness because Jesus already did all the work for you. Jesus earned eternal life for you. That's why he chose to suffer. That's why he chose the nails on the cross was so that he could earn eternal life for us. It's a free gift now for us. Jesus earned it. It's yours for free. All you have to do is say to God, yes, I want that. I want to be forgiven. I want eternal life. I believe that Jesus chose to suffer in my place so that I could be forgiven. Jesus chose to suffer for us. And because he chose to suffer for us, now when we suffer, we get to turn to a God who understands. He he knows what it's like to be alone. He knows what it's like to be depressed. He knows what it's like to hurt and to be in pain and to be abandoned by everybody you care about. He has been there. Whatever pit you find yourself in, Jesus was there first. He's been in the pit. He knows what it feels like. He knows what it seems like, what it looks like to be in that pit of suffering. You have a God who knows your suffering firsthand. He knows it by experience. And because of that, the book of Hebrews tells us, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You have a God who understands your suffering so well. He knows it so well. He's been in the pit before you that when you are hurting, when you are grieving, when you are in pain, you are calling out to a God who knows exactly what you need. He is ready to give you aid in your moment of need because he's been there first. All of us are going to suffer. You just have to wrap your mind around that and believe that. You live in a sin-cursed, broken world. You're a human being. You're going to suffer. So every person in this room is either suffering right now or you will be suffering soon. That's just life, this side of heaven. You are going to suffer, so the question is, will you suffer well? When pain comes, when hardship comes, when suffering comes, will you endure it 
well. To that end, let me challenge you two things. To be doing now so that when suffering comes into your life, you can suffer well. First, memorize these four beliefs. Write them down, memorize them, own them. I want you to think about them. I want you to meditate on what they mean. I want you to repeat them to yourself so that they sink in deeply into your heart. So that when pain comes, when suffering comes, you know them. They're they're rolling off your tongue. You know them in your moment of pain. I have a God who is with me right now when I'm hurting. I have a God who's, who's using my pain towards some greater purpose for some greater good. I have a God who isn't done with me. He still has significant work for me to do despite my pain and suffering. And I have a God who knows suffering firsthand. He has been here. I want you to memorize those four beliefs and repeat them to yourself so that they sink deeply into your heart. That's the first thing that I want you to do. Second thing that I want you to do to prepare well for suffering is I want you to get busy serving other people. That's how you're going to protect yourself when suffering comes. You build a habit in your life of caring more about other people than about yourself. Of waking up in the morning and before you reflect on everything going wrong in your life, you think about who can I help today? Who can I encourage? Who can I love? If you will build that habit in your life of caring for other people, of serving other people, of working hard to care for the needs of others, then when suffering comes into your life, you will endure it well. Because here's how it works. If, if all you care about is yourself, if you're always looking at yourself, focusing on yourself, your needs, your desires, if all you see is you, then when life gets really bad, when it gets really painful and everything is going wrong here with you, man, life is going to get unbearable. Because all you see is you. All you see is the pain. All you see is the suffering. But if you will train yourself to look past you towards other people, towards their needs, then when suffering comes to your life, you will be too busy looking over here to get wrapped up in this. You'll be ready for suffering. You'll be ready to endure it well because you have trained yourself in the habit of serving other people. If you'll build that habit now before suffering comes, then you will find that suffering is much easier to endure. Be too busy focusing on the needs of others to get wrapped up in your own needs. Suffering is coming for all of us. That's just the reality of life, this side of heaven. So let's pray and ask God to help us to suffer well. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we praise you for these truths about you. Lord, you are so different than the gods of other religions. You you are a God unlike anything man has ever conceived We praise you and we thank you that you are a God who is with us in all the pain and in all the suffering of life and all of the messed up stuff about life. You are not removed from it. You are not far away from us. You are with us, walking side by side on our side. We thank you, Lord, that you are always with us, that you are always here. Please help us to believe that. Even if we don't feel like you are with us, help us to believe that you are right with us. You are here as much in our pain as in our pleasures. And second, Lord, we praise you that you are the kind of God who is working through our pain, through our suffering to bring incredible good. We praise you that you are a sovereign God. We praise you that that you do not cause suffering, you do not cause pain, you do not cause evil, but you are good enough and powerful enough and, and wise enough to work behind all of that suffering and all of that pain and all of that sin to bring about a greater good, to bring about something so good for us and for other people than when we see it, when we stand before you in heaven and you show it to us. We will look back at all the pain and suffering of this life and say it was but a small price to pay 
for all the good that you are bringing about through it. We praise you that you are a God who has called us to service. We praise you that you are a God who has empowered us through your Holy Spirit living in us to serve and care about other people. Please, Heavenly Father, help us to serve others. Help us to get our eyes off of ourselves. Help us to quit becoming fixated with, with our problems, with our needs, with our desires. Help us to become preoccupied with the needs of other people. I pray that we would grow in that habit that every one of us in this room would become absolutely preoccupied day in and day out caring for the needs of other people. And finally, Lord, we praise you that you know our suffering firsthand. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that though you could have stayed in heaven enjoying nothing but perfection and beauty and bliss for all eternity, that you freely chose out of love for us to take on this this limited human flesh and and walk among us on this sin-stained planet and suffer such incredible abuse and pain and suffering. Thank you that you freely chose to suffer all of that out of love for us so that we could be forgiven. We pray, Lord, for any person in this room who hasn't yet received eternal life as a free gift. Please help them to see it's not something they have to work for. It's not something they have to earn because you earned it, Lord Jesus, for us. And we pray that they would simply believe and receive it as a gift. Father, we pray that we would go from here strengthened in our faith, strengthened in our belief that you are with us in our pain, that you are working behind the scenes to bring about incredible good, and that you understand our pain firsthand. You've been there first. We thank you for the God that you are. We praise you for the privilege of knowing and worshiping you. We pray all this for the glory and renown of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys.